hey, internet, happy Friday, or maybe Saturday, or, you know, whatever. I don't know when you're listening to this. I don't know your life. I'm just glad you're listening to it. This is Locked On Los Angeles Kings, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. My name is Sarah. I am your host, and I'm bringing you some Kings talk today as we continue through fake off season. As I've been touting for probably a couple weeks now, today is going to be the inaugural discussion day of the Locked On Los Angeles Kings book club. I'm going to be talking later in the show about the first chapter of Bob Miller's Tales from the Los Angeles Kings locker room. So that is coming up a little bit later. Also, thank you to everyone who tweeted, who followed the podcast's Twitter account and who retweeted in order to win the book. Uh, By the time you're listening to this, the winner has been contacted. So thanks to all of you for participating and to the new followers. Welcome. I'm glad that you are here and I hope you stick around uh, as we chat about the Kings uh, and delve into some cool stuff uh, that we otherwise would not have really had time to dig into uh, because the Kings would have still been, you know, playing some hockey. Uh, but first, wanted to drop a little bit of Kings news on you. Uh, just some things that I have seen on the internets in the past couple of days uh, that I think are maybe of interest to all y'all out there. Uh, first off, the uh, NHL Players Association released the results of their annual players poll. No surprise here. Drew Doughty is the Kings player who got the most mentions in that poll. Uh, in past years, guys like Quick and Kopitar have popped up on there, but this year it was all Doughty. Uh, he came up in three different polls. Uh, this is, uh, you know, a poll of NHL players. So it's not media. It's not fans. It is, you know, what it says on the tin. It's the Players Association doing the poll. Uh, 6.54% of respondents uh, said that Drew Doughty was the best defenseman. I think that put him fourth. The top three were Victor Hedman, John Carlson and Roman Yossi. Uh, probably no coincidence that those three are kind of considered the front runners for possible Norris Trophy nominee slash win, uh, you know, if there's actually NHL awards this year. Uh, and then the next two results for Dowdy were pretty interesting. 13.37% of respondents said that he was the best trash talker in the league. Uh, that put him second, right behind Brad Marchand, who, of course, was going to be the first. And then for the worst trash talker in the league, 6.85% said Drew Doughty. That was also second uh, in the results behind Brad Marchand. So I would love to talk to the players. You know that there is one guy who said that he was both the best and the worst (laughs) trash talker in the league. Um, You know that someone did that. Uh, But I would love to uh, hear the rationale and answers uh, from guys who said he's the best and guys who said that he's the worst, uh, because that is some pretty hilarious poll results, honestly. A little bit of attention on Drew Doughty from the Players Association poll. Always a fun read, uh, you know, and I think a neat way to get to see who players are thinking about uh, in terms of who's the best in the league. And the other kind of Kings thing that I saw that I wanted to chat about real quick was I just happened to be, you know, sitting around scrolling around on Instagram because that's what you do when you don't have a whole ton else going on. And you suddenly don't have a commute anymore and you you got a little bit of spare time left in your schedule that you didn't have uh, before um, is you find ways to waste time on the internet even more than you already did and happened to be on Instagram when I got a notification that Jeff Carter was going to be doing a live segment for the Rapid Athlete Development Program. It's rad underscore hockey on Instagram. They are a LA-based training development uh, program for youth because of 
they're being based in LA and uh, having a lot of familiarity with Kings players. Uh, they have had a lot of guys on these little Instagram live interviews recently, uh, including Tyler Toffoli, Cal Clifford, uh, Nate Thompson was on, Teddy Purcell did an episode uh, of a little Q&A with them, and then Jeff Carter was on. And so I, I happened to jot down a few things that he said uh, as they were chatting uh, that I thought were interesting. Uh, they don't have the show up yet. I, I say show like it wasn't like a 10 minute Q&A live video, but you know, whatever. Uh, they don't have it up yet on like their Instagram stories or anything. But if I do see the link go up, I will post it. But in it, they talked a little bit about, you know, Jeff's sort of development as he grew up. And one of the things that they kind of started off with was talking to him about who his biggest influences were, uh, his mentors as a player. Uh, and, you know, he said, aside from his dad, who was his coach uh, for most of his childhood, the first person that he really said was John Stevens, uh, because John Stevens was basically there with him through all of Philadelphia and then through the King and winning the Stanley Cups and everything. I think John Stevens got a little bit of a raw deal. Like, you know, listen to any guy who has played under him and you can just hear the respect they have for him as a mentor, as a teacher, uh, as someone who helped make their games better. Anytime someone kind of like talks bad about John Stevens after, you know, he was let go by the Kings, it makes me a little sad because he is, uh, has been really important to the career and development of a lot of players uh, and helped make them, you know, better, more complete hockey players. And Carter still calls him all, all these years later, his, uh, kind of biggest influence, um, you know, one of the most important people in his hockey life, I think, uh, speaks volumes. Uh, other things that he talked about, I thought it was interesting, they asked him about his stick, and he was saying that he basically played with the same, like, shaft part of the stick, uh, the same model since he was a teenager up until last year. Uh, and then Bauer basically was like, listen, we're not even making the stuff that we use to make this stick for you, you have to switch to something new. Uh, so for years, he'd been playing with this, you know, very heavy stick that was just not not the way that they're made anymore. For like gear nerds out there, I think that would be interesting to dive into. He talked about picking his number and 77 was a new one for him uh, when he came to the Kings and the number seven was already taken and they suggested 77 and he kind of thought about it for a while and he didn't love it at first, but essentially sort of thought of it as turning over a new leaf in his career, uh, playing with a number he'd never played with before and you know, just sort of starting fresh after everything that happened in Columbus and getting traded from Philly. Uh, it was an interesting kind of look at how, you know, a player actually thinks about that kind of stuff. Uh, and there's always an interesting divide between guys who do actually put a little thought into their numbers. And then the guys who are like, I don't know, equipment guy gave it to me and I kept it. So that was kind of neat. He shared a story about uh, best prank that he was involved in. And he said that he's not really a big prank guy, which like, I had never known that. But I also would never have guessed that he was a prank guy. He just doesn't seem like it. Uh, doesn't seem like the kind of guy who wants, wants to have to deal with that nonsense. But he said a couple years ago, uh, a bunch of guys got into Drew Doughty's room, took the mattress out and put it in the, the team suite. They made up the bed to look to make it look like there was still a mattress there. And they just sort of waited for Dowdy to to notice and come 
around asking. Uh, and I think the kicker of this story would have been if Dowdy had never noticed, uh, because in the little interview, uh, Carter even says, if you know Dowdy, you know, he's the kind of guy who might not even notice you took his mattress. And so I was really hoping that was where the story was going to go was that like, yeah, we sat around waiting and he never showed up. But of course, eventually he does show up. I think he said it took Dowdy a while to even notice that the mattress was actually propped up in the team suite. So I guess that's that's as close as I'm going to get to that sort of satisfaction. Uh, they did kind of a fast Q&A of favorites and milestones and important things like that. Uh, He said that the Olympics were sort of the best part of his career biggest moment other than the Stanley Cup, uh, especially because he, you know, knowing how many talented players there are in Canada, uh, he never thought he would have the opportunity to to play for Canada in the Olympics. Uh, That's still one of my favorite Jeff Carter things is the interview where some reporter asks him like, hey, I heard people are really upset that you got named to the Olympic team. Uh, And Jeff Carter's like, what, me? Like, and he just sort of has this cocky, sort of bewildered expression uh, when he's talking about it. One one of the moments that early on endeared me to Jeff Carter was his attitude about being uh, named to be on the Olympic squad and the (laughs) bewilderment of fans that did not want him there. And I think he had a pretty good Olympics too. So, you know, awesome. I think the the one that got me the most and kind of put me right in my feels was they asked him who his favorite line mate was and he took a little bit to think about it and then he said basically I'm going to cheat and name two and then I was like where are we going with this Uh, and he said his favorite line mates were Tyler and Tanner uh, to Foley and Pearson aside from winning the cup he liked playing with the younger guys and liked their energy and you know kind of felt like they helped him sort of step up his game dragging him around the ice basically so I guess if you want your dose of 2014 Kings feels right there uh, Jeff Carter said on the record his favorite line mates Tyler Trifoli and Tanner Pearson and then the uh, other one that I thought was delightful the interviewer asked him his most embarrassing hockey moments and Jeff Carter's most embarrassing hockey moment is one of my favorite hockey moments because he said it was when he tried to fight Ryan Kessler. That was sad. It wasn't good. Uh, It was one punch and he was done. But man, (laughs) I still think about that game sometimes and just it gave me everything I possibly could have wanted right then. I'm sorry that you're embarrassed by that, Jeff. Probably should have known better, but also thank you for your service for giving me that moment. Next up on the show, we're going to talk about 2012 and Bob Miller. So for the first edition of the Locked On Los Angeles Kings Book Club, we're talking about the first chapter of Bob Miller's book, Tales from the Los Angeles Kings Locker Room. And first off, I was excited to read this because he spends a lot of time talking about King's history that I don't know about. I am younger-ish. I'm an old millennial, let's say. And growing up, didn't exactly grow up in a time where like, you learned a lot about teams that weren't in your area. Like it wasn't like today where you can stream and you can find things on like there was no online. And so I didn't really grow up knowing a whole lot about anything that didn't, you know, directly impact like Western Pennsylvania. Being a Kings person now, I know that I have a lot of history uh, to catch up on. And so I was pretty excited to read this book because I figured it would be a great chance to learn about things that like I wasn't alive for or, you know, wasn't conscious of because my hockey world was basically like Yarmir Yager and Mario Lemieux and that was kind of it. But what I wasn't expecting was 
to read the first chapter of the book and realize that even though 2012 was eight years ago, like I know what I was doing in 2012. I can tell you where I lived. Um, I can tell you, you know, what job I had. Like it was not very long ago at all. I have no actual recollection of sports in 2012. I don't, I could not, like, obviously I knew the Kings won, but I could not tell you a single thing (laughs) that happened in the sports world that year. I feel like I was only vaguely paying attention to hockey at that point, and the Kings certainly weren't really on my radar that much. And so reading the chapter about the 2012 Cup run, it was a little odd because I know all of these things about it. I, I know what happened. I know who they played. I know how the games won, went. You know, I've, I've seen the videos and what like, but re- realizing that like 2012 still somehow seems incredibly far away and that I could not tell you a single thing that actually happened because I remember it. So that that was a little odd to me to, to realize that I was reading about something that I know about and probably even watched some of, but like had no impact or like imprint on me at the time and am apparently playing catch up for something that I thought that I like actually had a pretty good handle on. I think it was just very odd or different maybe to be reading about it from Bob Miller's perspective. I don't really know. So Bob Miller opens the book, like I said, with talking about the 2012 Cup run, and he brings up a very familiar problem for the Kings. In the opening paragraphs of of the book, essentially, Bob Miller says that 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 season, the Kings had good defense and outstanding goaltending, but their offense was in the doldrums. They couldn't score more than one or two goals a game, and many nights they struggled on the power play. The fact that this has been a, like, eight-plus year problem for the Kings, it's more than eight years, like, because offense in the recent memory has been a struggle for the Kings from start to finish. And, you know, (laughs) having Bob Miller put it right out there in this book, talking about a problem that you could paste those exact words into a review of any season of the Kings in recent memory, just is a little like, it's not funny. It's not quite entertaining. It's a little... It's a little ironic, don't you think? I don't know. Um, But it it just is always interesting to realize that this has been a consistent problem for the Kings for years, and no one has figured out how to solve it yet. doesn't matter how many coaches the team goes through. It doesn't matter who gets drafted, like none of it. They still, to this day, uh, even after making trades and stuff to get guys who can score goals, uh, still have this sort of perception as being a team that is very low scoring. Uh, so I wanted to point out a couple of other things. I actually took notes, like the nerd that I am, as I was reading, of things that kind of jumped out to me. First off, the fact that the Kings lost two games to San Jose at the end of the season, which dropped them down to third place in the division, which is, honest to God, the most Kings thing that could have ever happened. Like that is, <laughs> that it's just peak Los Angeles Kings. Uh, we all know that they kind of... St- squeaked into the playoffs this season. They squeaked into the playoffs in 2014. It's sort of the Kings thing is to just slide on in and see what happens. The fact that they lost those two crucial games at the very end of the season to change their whole overall trajectory is just incredibly Kings. But then you think about it and you're like, you know, 
butterfly effect here. Like, what if they hadn't? Uh, maybe that's the thing we talk about later in this fake off season is what if those, the Kings hadn't lost those two games? What would the playoff picture have looked like? What would uh, the outcome would have been? Would they have still won the Stanley Cup? Uh, who knows? Also pointed out in there, the play from Ryan Klo in one of the games where he is on the bench and he reaches over and pokes the puck off of Jarrett Stoll's stick while he's on the bench, which is, I get if you don't know, a thing you're not allowed to do. This was just like a huge outrage at the time. And, you know, even though, again, like I said, 2012 is in the recent past, like, we all had Twitter accounts in 2012. Uh, but I, I'm trying to imagine that play happening today. Uh, because the refs didn't catch it. There was no punishment, no whistle, no review. Uh, there's no mechanism to punish Ryan Klo for it. Replays show it as clear as day. Uh, he just reaches his stick over the bench and pokes the puck off of uh, Jarrett Stoll's stick. The NHL basically had nothing to say about it. I can only imagine how angry Daryl Sutter was about it. But I'm, I'm just trying to think about if that happened today, when social media is even more of a thing, and when there's so much focus on bad calls and bad plays and just the absolute uproar, the like immediate backlash on Twitter and the, you know, people, everyone on your timeline posting the same screenshot of Chloe reaching over this bench. I would love actually, like maybe it would ha- it could happen to someone else. Like I don't want it to happen to the Kings, but I would love to see social media lose their absolute minds at uh, something like this in today's world. Chloe, when asked about that play, his response literally was, "I have no idea what you're talking about," which makes me mad today in the year 2020. Uh, I mean, obviously, I don't expect him to have admitted to what he did, but you know. That wasn't a mistake. That wasn't a oops, I like lost control of my my stick on the bench. That was a legitimate, you know, let's just see what I can get away with. After I read this chapter in the book, I went back and, you know, did some YouTube diving and, you know, watching him just sit there and be like, I don't know what you're talking about. You'll have to show me a video or something just made me so mad. And I can only imagine how mad I would have been (laughs) in 2012 following along with that. Brad Richardson apparently scored the tying goal in game five in that series. And the the thing that I wrote down underneath this was, remember him? Remember how he's still playing? Uh, he has carved out a pretty nice career for himself, honestly, uh, with the Arizona Coyotes. Uh, at one point a couple seasons ago, he actually led the Coyotes in goals. I don't know that he ended the season that way, but he, for a large part of the season, uh, was their leading goal scorer, which I think says a whole lot, honestly, about the Coyotes of that season. He is still still plugging away in Arizona. If you're curious as to, you know, what he's been up to lately, the 35-year-old forward got into 59 games for the Coyotes this season. He had six goals and five assists, 11 total points. Uh, Last season, he had 19 goals on the Coyotes that year. That was a whole heck of a lot of goals. Uh, But so he's still playing. He is still out there. And you know what? Good for him. A couple other thoughts as I was reading the book. There's a line in there about the series against the St. Louis Blues, where uh, Miller writes that the series featured the top two goalies in the league, Jonathan Quick and Brian Elliott. And I go, really? I'm very familiar with the St. Louis Blues. I see a lot of them here in the Midwest and definitely just had this moment of being like, 
Wow. At one point, Brian Elliott was elite. <laughs> um, he certainly has not been able to capitalize on that or really find the extended success that you would have thought as, you know, someone who was at one point in time, one of the best goalies in the NHL. But Brian Elliott, elite, pretty crazy, right? I will be honest and say I literally had no idea, no remembrance that the Kings played the Coyotes or that the Coyotes had seen the playoffs at all at any point in the recent past. They played the Kings in the conference finals and I blocked this out entirely. That was actually the last time that the Coyotes, then the Phoenix Coyotes, appeared in the playoffs was the uh, 2012 conference finals that they uh, lost to the Kings. Uh, but so that was a little bit of a surprise. Uh, like I said, like, there's no reason for 2012 to be this much of a like blank spot for me. Um, you know, even knowing that I wasn't necessarily following the Kings that much <laughs> that year, like I still had a general awareness of what was going on in the world world, but I feel like I just like deleted all of that knowledge and replaced it with I, I don't know what, but something else. <laughs> but so that was a nice surprise for me was finding out that the Coyotes uh, played in <laughs> the playoffs that year. If you want a, uh, a, a glimpse at the roster of the then Phoenix Coyotes in their last playoff game, that's some names there. Oliver, Oliver Ekman Larson might be the only guy on this list who is still on the Coyotes uh, and one of the few guys who is still playing at all. Uh, Mikel Bodker, uh, he's still playing. Other guys on the the roster, Martin Hansall is on there. Mike Smith is probably one of the only guys who is still active as an NHLer. Uh, Michael Roosevelt played for the Coyotes. Antoine Vermette, uh, Verbata, Keith Yandel, uh, just... A whole, and a whole bunch of guys that like, I recognize their names, but I don't recognize their names as like guys who have done a whole bunch. Uh, but yeah, Ekman Larson, I think is the only guy on this list who is still a coyote, which is uh, saying something. We'll talk a little bit more about 2012 next week, including a couple more anecdotes from the book that I couldn't quite fit in today. So, I mean, I guess if you didn't have time to read the book yet, uh, or at least read that first chapter, you get a reprieve and we'll talk about it some more next week. We'll continue our discussion on the 2012 Cup Run next week. Uh, but before we wrap up today, I want to share with you one more anecdote that I kind of loved in this chapter was Bob Miller talking about all of the Stanley Cup parties and uh, the fact that the cup gets to go everywhere and all of the kind of rules around taking the Stanley Cup to parties and stuff like that. Uh, he says there's a form you have to fill out and there is a warning on the form that says the cup will be picked up and taken away early if it is not treated with respect. Uh, so I would love to know how many times the keeper of the cup has ever had to remove <laughs> the Stanley Cup from the premises. I'm thinking particularly about Washington's cup celebrations. Uh, if they have ever felt the need to remove the cup from a situation in which the cup should not be in. Like, so my day job is in human resources. And a lot of what I do is talk about rules and regulations. And why do we have to have a rule about this? Well, we have to have a rule about it because someone did something stupid once. I'd love to know what the straw was that broke the camel's back, essentially, and made the NHL and the keepers of the cup write that line in there in the documents that you have to sign to get the cup for your party day. That would be uh, one interesting story because we know that uh, that cup has seen 
absolutely everything. So those are sort of my thoughts on the 2012 playoff chapter of Bob Miller's book. Uh, If you have thoughts about the 2012 run, if you have a memory that you would like to share, if you have your own sort of recollections or things that you thought were interesting about that playoff run, I would love to hear from you. Send me an email at lockedonlakings at gmail.com with a memory or, or your thoughts or whatever on the 2012 Cup run, and I will read your comments on the air. You can also tweet at me at Locked on LA Kings. I'd love to hear from you if you have a special memory uh, of that year. Were you someone who was maybe in the arena for that game? Something special that happened that, you know, has really made that stick in your mind, especially those of you guys out there who are like lifelong Kings fans, uh, being able to to see that moment uh, finally happen, the Stanley Cup coming to the Los Angeles Kings. I'd love to hear from you guys. We'll be talking a little more about 2012 next week as well. So like I said, I'd love to hear from you guys about your thoughts and memories from the Kings' very first Stanley Cup. You may have noticed that, you know, since there's no hockey, lots of us here on the Lockdown Network are going to be kind of not doing daily shows anymore uh, because there just isn't hockey to talk about. Uh, So right now the goal is we're going to do three shows a week. Right now I'm thinking it's going to be Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, but we'll, we'll see how that goes with my schedule and podcast schedule. And of course, if there is breaking news uh, for the Kings, uh, something happens, we will throw in a special extra episode if we, uh, have something breaking to talk about. I'll be back with all of you guys again on Tuesday, uh, talking a little more about 2012 and seeing what else we can dig up. So like I said, you can follow me on Twitter. You can tweet your thoughts at me at Locked on LA Kings. You can also find me personally on Twitter at right said Sarah. Email at LockedOnLAKings at gmail.com. Of course, make sure you're following and subscribing to this show. Uh, if you are new here first, thanks. Welcome. Uh, glad you have chosen to listen to this show while there is no hockey <laughs> to watch. If you haven't subscribed, make sure you go and open whatever podcast app you're listening to this in. Or if you, you know, got sent a link, go find us. We're on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, anywhere you can find podcasts, we are there. Go hit that subscribe button. And of course, for everyone else, tell your friends all about it. If you have a Kings fan in your life, make sure they are listening to uh, keep track of what's going on with the Los Angeles Kings. Until next time, this has been Locked on Los Angeles Kings, part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day.